The following is a production of JSC Media. Stay, Stay ready. ready. You're listening to the People's Podcast. I was honest. Was I brutally honest? Yes. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that's the problem. Everybody's so scared to be honest with one another. This is JSC Radio. When I made the decision to, to, to take this pivot, I just kind of automatically assumed the world would be the path to my door because I had at that point already had like almost 10 years of media experience, reporting traffic on TV, you know, doing, I did do some red carpet interviews for some media outlets. I, I was on QVC. I was, I was doing all the things media wise. Um, to, to prepare myself to stand and in, in, to be in front of a camera and talk to people about things. And, oh, by the way, I got two engineering degrees. So the idea that I could position myself as a tech expert seemed like a no-brainer to me. It was not that way. Nobody gave up about what other experience that I had um, in the tech space. You're listening to The People's Podcast. This is Jay. SC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now, my name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 108th episode of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, better known as Jay Scott confidential how the hell is everyone doing welcome once again my friends to the podcast that never freaking ends in fact it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger i want to shout out every one of you who joined up who subscribed to this show and got on board for episode 107 again much thanks to Laura DeFrancesco. You're going to hear that name actually again during this podcast. I'll get to that in a second. I want to shout out Laura DeFrancesco. I want to thank all of you who support this show everywhere, all the time, always. I want to shout out, of course, everybody who follows me on social media. Be sure to follow me, J. Scott Smith, on social media at J. Scott Smith. That's J-A-Y-S-C-O. Two T's. S-M-I-T-H. Same thing goes on Instagram. J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H on Facebook. I am real J. Scott Smith. You can follow the show across all your different forms of social media at J-S-C Radio. I want to thank and shout out everyone who's listening to us across all the different podcast providers all around the world, starting, of course, with Apple Podcasts, iTunes, on SoundCloud and Stitcher, on iHeartRadio and TuneIn, on Radio.com and CastBox, on Audioboom, Player FM, and, of course, to everyone listening around the globe on Spotify. Thank you. Damn it. Thank you for supporting this show all damn day, all day long for the last four years, the four-year anniversary of this bad boy is coming up next month and already got plans because actually, unlike last year, we'll be able to do a show for the anniversary this damn time. So get ready for that. I want to thank each and every one of you who supports this show. Be sure to support the homies, Awesome Jones, who you heard his track, Blue Chucks. That's the intro track to this podcast. You hear it every week. It's called Blue Chucks. Get on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Awesome Jones. Awesome is spelled O-S-S-I-M, even though he is A-W-E-S-O-M. This dude is hella awesome. Awesome Jones, O-S-S-I-M Jones on SoundCloud. And, of course, the man, Doc Gillingsworth. Exactly. The man, Doc Gillingsworth. You can get at him all over the social medias at Illingsworth, I L. I-L-L, let me make sure I get that right, I-L-L-I-N-G, 
S and Worth. It's all one word. He's Illingsworth on Twitter, Illingsworth on Instagram. He's Illingsworth on Bandcamp where you can get all his new EPs. He comes out with so many of those damn things every few days. I can't even keep up with them. But you can go to bandcamp.com and look up Illingsworth. You can get all his new shit. And if you're around the Midwest, and I'm talking about as far west as St. Louis and Minneapolis to as far east as Pittsburgh and, and Morgantown, West Virginia, and all points in between, the homie Illingsworth is going to be on the Midwest tour in March and April with Homeboy Sandman. So be sure to be on the lookout for that. You can get all the information. We'll have actually have the information to get tickets is going to be in the description of this podcast. So you want to go see Doc Illingsworth and hear all that dope shit he does firsthand, be sure to jump your ass into the right into the mentions, right into the bottom part, right, right in that little description you have, no matter what podcast provider you're on, hit that link and get those damn tickets. I want to thank Flourish in Westchester, Pennsylvania, owned by Miss Laura DeFrancesco, who you just heard on episode 107 last week. She allowed me to come in to that amazing space of hers and record this week's guest on the podcast. Before I do that, if you have a podcast that you're trying to do or that you've started and you're looking for a way to upgrade your equipment and you think you got to spend crazy amounts of money to be able to do that shit, man, you do not. You don't. I got you covered. Your boy, J. Scott Smith, and J. Scott Confidential got you covered. Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash J. Scott Smith. J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H. Go there for the J-S-C Media Storefront, and that's Podcasting 101. We can set you up with all sorts of cool stuff for very low prices. You've got microphones on Amazon that are under $50. you got great studio-quality headphones under uh, under 50 bucks. You can get a great recorder to record your guest, no matter where you are, for just under $200. And of course, you've got laptops and all sorts of extra accessories that you need to make your life easier, including the mixer board that's used on this show. Amazon.com slash shop slash J. Scott Smith. Be sure to tell them J. Scott sent you and buy it directly off the site. We'll be able to do all sorts of great stuff for you. So now... We bring in our guest. Ladies and gentlemen, this week's guest here on Jay Scott Confidential is Miss Stephanie Humphrey. And Stephanie Humphrey is one of the most dynamic women you will ever meet in entertainment. She was born in Pittsburgh, but first got into... Now, here's the thing. She didn't get into media initially. She is a former engineer. She has multiple degrees in engineering. We'll get into all this during the podcast. But she has multiple degrees in engineering, but wasn't fulfilled and by chance decided she wanted to take a shot at going in to media. Now she currently hosts everything from her from your 60 second tech break across Instagram and all different forms of social media. You've probably and very likely seen her in such places as QVC. If you're in Philadelphia, you've seen her on Fox 29 Philly out here. You've also likely heard her for years on KYW News Radio as one of the traffic reporters. And one of the places you're going to see her a hell of a lot these days is on Good Morning America with Kiki Palmer and Michael Strahan and Robin Roberts. Stephanie Humphrey is a dynamo, but her story is even more fascinating. And you'll realize very quickly that she is the realist in the room. Plus, she also leads seminars on social media behavior and branding for kids called Till Death Do You Tweet. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 108th episode of the People's Podcast. This is Jay Scott Confidential, 
better known as JSC Radio. We're not wasting time. We're getting right to it. Let's head over to Flourish in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where I sat down with the one and the only Tech Life Steph, Miss Stephanie Humphrey. This is a presentation of JSC Media. So, Stephanie, I am, I consider it an honor because I know as busy as you are to be able to have time to talk to me for this thing is, I, I for one, I'm so thankful for it. Welcome to J. Scott Confidential, first and foremost, as we are doing this from, from Flourish, where anybody listened to 107, this is where I talked to Laura. It's an amazing space, and she's done such an awesome job here of getting it all set up, and she's allowed us to do this here today, so I wanted to shout her out, too. So, Stephanie... I, there's so many, I know you're, you're almost always everywhere. Every time I look up, I see, I see you, you're either on good morning America or you're, you're hosting one of, you're hosting one of your 60, 60 second. I don't know how you do 60 seconds. I can't do anything in 60 seconds. It's like, I can I, I can barely introduce myself in under two minutes. And this is, you, you do your 60 second tech tech breaks. You have your, the series that you're doing to left do us tweet where you talk to kids. My thing is, I want to be able to kind of start from where you be, kind of like your beginnings of all this, and how you first got into into media and being in TV. And I know you were you were an engineer before any, anything else. I guess we're gonna go right from the beginning. You you're originally from Pittsburgh. Yeah, you're from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, what brought you first and foremost? What was it like growing up in Pittsburgh? Because it's a fellow. It's a, I guess Pittsburgh's technically a Midwest city, even though it's in Pennsylvania. Fellow Midwesterner here. What was it like growing up for you in Pittsburgh? Well, Pittsburgh was um, very much a small town. Uh, it's it's a bigger city, but it has it very much has a small town feel, uh, especially where I'm from specifically. I'm from a small borough right outside of the city of Pittsburgh called Rankin, Pennsylvania, uh, which was super super small. So you you did grow up with sort of a it wasn't idyllic like a Mayberry, but as far as um, the idea that everyone knows each other, everyone's probably distantly related <laughs> in some way, um, and and everyone looked out for each other. You know, this was at a time when people did still look out for each other. When when you could get checked by somebody else's mom down the street if necessary, um, and there was a, a real sense of community there. I do appreciate that. You know, now looking back on it, I think you know when you're in it and when you're a kid growing up, you think about the things that you. you you don't have or you didn't have and we didn't grow up with a ton of money necessarily I mean we weren't you know good times poor but uh, but we definitely didn't have every single thing I, I definitely didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth so to speak um, but when you look back on what you did have and and when you look back on that community that was there you you do um, understand the and, and appreciate what you did have so I, I you know I don't have a whole lot bad to say about my childhood we all you know everybody has ups and downs and go through stuff and challenges and everything but for the most part you know I had very supportive parents you know I had great siblings you know good friends and 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 it was a it was a fairly simple um, upbringing how many brothers and sisters you have? I have an older brother that I grew up with in the house, and then I have a younger sister who is a half-sister that uh, didn't grow up in the house with us um, after my parents' divorce. 
you know, she was my my father's new wife's. Uh, that was their kid. Um, so technically two, but really just the one because it was just me and my brother growing up. So what first got you into STEM? Because that's what obviously was called these days with being deep into science and math. And I know you eventually ended up becoming an engineer. What was it that interested you about being in engineering and math that kind of jumped out to you as opposed to say someone like me where me and math were not good friends. That's why I'm a journalist. It's like I, I was anything that I, as soon as I saw letters start showing up in, in math equations, I was done. But that once anything past the Pythagorean theorem, I wasn't messing with. <laughs> why is this X? Why am I trying to solve for it? Can it X solve itself? What was it about math that did it for you and got you leaning more toward the engineering side? Well, I mean, I was the smart kid. You know, you you have all those archetypes in your school. You got the the athlete, the jock, the this kid, that kid. I was the smart kid. Um, and I really just, I liked math and science, you know, and I, and I was good at it. And I think when, you know, you you when you recognize that you have those talents or when when other people recognize those talents in you you get steered towards those areas and and those areas are the areas that get cultivated so um when it was recognized that i was good in math and science i mean i was good i was i was a nerd so i was good in everything <laughs> but i was good in math and science as well um and and i think that was sort of my proclivity as well. I like solving problems. I like figuring out how things work. I like taking stuff apart. I like, you know, that whole thing. I, I love math. You know, the idea that there is a formula and that it's the same all the time and that is there. I'm, I'm, I'm a very um, influenced. I like structure. I like uh Rules. I like order. You know, I wear horizontal stripes a lot <laughs> because I like order. So, so the idea that there was this universal set of rules that govern mathematics and that govern science and that govern physics and that it's immutable. It's the same here. It's the same. You know, in Thailand, it's the same. In Paris, it's the same. All around the world. Um, what language? Exactly. It, it, it. Two plus two is four. Anywhere on the planet. So um, I, I, I think I gravitated towards that order um, and that uniformity in in math. And um, so, and then I understood or, or was was helped to understand that that pursuing a career in that area would benefit me in the future and would provide a lifestyle for me that um, where I could be comfortable. How were you when you first figured out that was your thing? Oh, man. Um, young, young, young. Uh, you know, taking apart your boombox and your Walkman and not making, not putting them back together again properly. And so, yeah, that was, that was a thing, you know, from, from the beginning. I mean, I can remember being in like first and second grade and, you know, my teacher giving me extra worksheets cause I blew through the little edition worksheets that she gave me in, in 10 minutes. Yeah, I was, I was. Um, so yeah. And then I can remember, you know, being put in gifted classes and being on the math team and the equation team and, and different stuff like that so it's that that's been a memory of mine since the beginning you see a lot of like a, a lot of young black kids just like as we were at one time too and and you don't see us as much even though I, I in Detroit my thing was I would see kids in the academic games team I was more of a history nerd I was a history buff I could spell I was I was reading at like a seventh grade level in third grade like I was just a big reader everything just kind of got in there with me Growing up in in that part of in that part of Western PA, and you see a lot of young black kids who education is a big thing. 
clearly from it came for you you're constantly learning i see that even now it's like you're constantly trying to do different things it's like you you're always thinking when you see some of us what is it that with a lot of younger kids these days and even growing up what kind of did you feel people at times tried to put some sort of limitations on you because obviously you see a young black young black woman and i and we'll talk more about this too but young black women coming into some of these spaces did you sense at a young age that some people were like well are you sure that's what you want to do maybe you maybe you would like doing this more type of thing not from anyone that looked like me i'll put it that way um that was one of the things that you know, I talked about growing up in a smaller community. Um, that community supported me wholeheartedly. Now, did I get teased because my glasses looked a little bit nerdy? Of course, because that's what kids do. Um, but I never felt like, you know, you see those movies like like um, Stand and Deliver and, and Lean on Me where the, the, the smart kid in the school is too scared to carry his books home because he doesn't want anybody to know that he actually, like that was not my experience at all. You know, people, everybody knew I was the smart kid because it was a small community, but everybody supported that and everybody expected me to do well. The expectations were very high that I would make straight A's and, and you know, that I would go to college and that I was going to be the one that makes it out. So I, I felt very, very supported within my community um, around the idea of being the smart kid. There were some others <laughs> that did not look like me that, um, you know, questioned what I wanted to do. I can remember very specifically, two, two specific incidents. I can remember my, my high school guidance counselor telling me that I might want to, um, I was, you know, because I was determined to be an engineer. And at, at first I was looking at uh, computer science and um, computer animation and different things like that. And I, and I just figured, I was like, well, if I'm going to be in math and science and engineering and all of that, then I should just go to MIT. You know, that was the thing like, duh, it's the best school in the country for, for technology and STEM and things like that. So I should go to MIT. And I can remember very specifically my guidance counselor telling me that, you know, I probably shouldn't set my sights that high. Um, oh really? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so that was one. And then there was a there was a boy who you know because once you sort of you know self segregate into those advanced classes, you're in you're in them with all the same people all throughout high school. And there was one young man in particular who, for all four years of high school, could not wrap his head around the idea that I might actually be smarter than him. And so anytime we would have a test and I would get a higher grade, this boy would literally drag me up to the teacher's desk and have him explain how my score was higher than his. Like he, he couldn't handle it. His head would explode anytime I got a higher grade than him. And, um, and I was like, I don't really know what you want to tell you, bro. I, I, you know? <laughs> and, and, it, and, it, and it might only be the difference between a 97 and a 95, but he just, he, he just couldn't fathom. He couldn't fathom. It ate his ass alive that that he All got day. that that he, that you beat him basically. All day. All day. That is, and it just fascinated me because I I couldn't understand like what his problem was because you didn't do that to anyone else in the class and there were other people in the class that did better than you you know but you you sort of you know singled me out and focused in on me to uh you know air your grievances with and and it was just it was like all right well i'm gonna keep winning and you do what you gotta do you know on your end so yeah it, it's uh it, it, he looked at almost like thinking that it's it's unfair 
and I think we know why. <laughs> it's kind of obvious, unfortunately, why. Because any, it's almost like the ballad of most smart black kids. We got to always deal with somebody doubting it, questioning whether we're legit, whether we cheated or not. Whether how did you do this? How did you know how to do this? And you, you just mentioned something there in the midst of that. You said that you could have ended up going because you legit could have gone anywhere. You ended up going to. You said you why not just go to MIT? Mm-hmm. You ended up going to Florida A and M. So what was it that suddenly led to that being the decision to go to an HBCU? Honestly, I'm going to just keep it all the way on it. <laughs> the money. <laughs> Honestly, it was because I, I, I did want to go to MIT and I had gotten um, I hadn't finished the application process at the time, but I had gotten as part of the application process for MIT, you have to be interviewed by an MIT alum in your area. And I had gotten my interview and the guy was super impressed and he was like, I'm definitely going to write you a letter of recommendation. I think you should go. I think you should be there. I was figuring out how to pay for it at the time. Um, And, you know, as smart a kid as I was, my test scores weren't like, I mean, they were decent, but you know, I didn't make a 1600 on my SATs. I didn't even make a 1500 on my SAT. So, you know, MIT was not breaking down my door to give me any money to actually go. So I was figuring out how I was going to go and pay for it. Um, I didn't want to take out a whole bunch of loans. MIT is super expensive. So I didn't want to do that. So I, I actually at the time was looking into an Air Force ROTC scholarship. Uh, because I did have all of the qualifications for that. I, I was, you know, diametrically opposed to doing an active duty, you know, tour afterwards. But I was like, you know what, if, if two years active duty is going to get me this free degree, then then so be it. You know, I'll suck it up. But in the midst of and, and then, too, you know, you couple that with, you know, parents that didn't go to college. So I was sort of navigating this whole financial aid college application process by myself. You know, I was I was feeling like like the like a boss cuz I was actually getting mail from schools, mm-hmm. you know, when you're young, you don't get mail. Nothing comes to the house with your name on it, but so I'm getting mail every day from different schools and everybody wants to, you know, give me a financial aid package, but I'm literally just, you know, sort of figuring figuring this out on my own for the most part. And and as I'm figuring out how I'm going to pay for MIT, you know, mind you I still hadn't gotten in yet, but I, I figured I'm going to get in. Um, the president of Florida A&M University, Dr. Frederick S. Humphreys at the time, called me. And he, wow. yeah, and he was, he was in town. He was in Pittsburgh at the time doing like an info session for students. And um, he wanted me to come out to, to the info session. And I didn't take the call. <laughs> the, the president of this university whose last name is really close to yours, calls you, and you didn't take the call. I had a basketball game that day. And I was like, I ain't missing my game to talk to this guy and go to his info center. Because I had never heard of Florida A&M University. You know, I'm, I'm from the North. You know, we didn't, HBCUs weren't necessarily a thing. And then when you, you know, when you're in a community where not a whole lot of people even go to college anyway, like you don't have that foundation. You know, I knew about Howard and Spelman and Morehouse and that was about it. You know, if you said Tuskegee, I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's one, too. But, right, right. So I could probably name five HBCUs if, if I had to at the time. But, you know because they don't teach that in school and because you know there was no one around me that had that experience 
the the importance of HBCUs and the history behind HBCUs wasn't something that I grew up hearing all the time. You know, now, you know, I, you know, I get to school and, and I meet people who are like, oh, my parents went to fam, my grandparents went to fam. I knew I was, I always knew I was going to go to fam. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're like, what? You know what I mean? So I, I didn't have that experience. And then I also, again, growing up in a, in a kind of lower economic strata, you didn't, you weren't in Jack and Jill. You, you didn't have a parent that was in a fraternity or a sorority or a link or whatever. So, so that, that whole sort of talented 10th ecosystem wasn't something that I was a part of growing up. So I just didn't, I didn't even know what I didn't know. I didn't even know better. So I hadn't even heard of Florida A&M University before President Frederick S. Humphreys called me. And, and so, you know, in my youthful ignorance, because I'm going to MIT, you know, why, why I need to talk to this man, you know, at this school called FAMU that I've never heard of. But, you know, with God's grace, he called me back. He called me back after his info session that I didn't go to. And he said, I'll never forget it. He said, Stephanie Humphrey. I took the I finally took the call. Stephanie Humphrey, you are a hard young lady to get in touch with. I was like, hey, what's up? You know, real <laughs> casual. This is a pre- university president. I'm like, what's good? And uh, he said, listen, I want you to come to Florida A&M University. And I can promise you, if you come, you will never have to pay anything other than a $35 application fee. And I said, sign me up. There you go. And that was it. And 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 at, and at the time, what I didn't know at the time was that he was on a mission to make FAMU the best HBCU in the country. And and FAMU has been the best HBCU in the country ranked um, a number of years. And his 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 strategy at that time was to get the most national achievement scholars to come to FAM because Harvard always got the most national achievement scholars. And, you know, for some some, um, background, um, the National Merit Program is a scholarship program that gets based off your PSAT scores. And the National Achievement Program is a subset of that for students of color. So um, if you became a National Achievement Scholar, like you could pretty much write your own ticket. And I was a National Achievement Scholar um, and National Merit Semifinalist. And um, so he got my name from the list and he's like, we want as we want more national achievement scholars than Harvard. That was his main goal. And, and he did that in the time that he was the president of, the, of that university. So, you know, he was crisscrossing the country, just calling up national achievement scholars and basically offering them money. And that's what he did for me. And the rest, is, as they say, is history. You were basically being recruited like a football player or a basketball player would have been where these guys are calling up, going in all these different homes, these different places where enough that what I've seen from like college football recruiting, how you look up on up and down a list like Michigan State University is like, how the hell did they get three guys from Miami to come up here to this cold weather? It's like because of things like that, where they where, where he reaches out to you. Actually, the the National Merit Scholarship because my high school in Detroit, Renaissance High School, we had a bunch of them come out of there because I know we had about seven or eight at least seven or eight people that I graduated with and it's 1997, but seven or eight of them that I graduated with and another, I think for about a good seven, eight year stretch, Detroit was a pipeline down to fam too. One more infamous fam. You alum from Detroit is Kwame Kilpatrick, but it's like, yeah, but we had a lot of, uh, we won't, we won't bring up, we won't bring Kwame up into this, but, but, but fam, you is, it, it's very interesting. Cause I, as, as you know, I teach, at a HBCU at Lincoln. And my mother went to an HBCU. She went to Tennessee State. And so for me, it was always, it was either Howard, Hampton, Morehouse, because Morehouse was like a thing for her, but I just I ended up at Michigan State. But her, Howard, Hampton, Morehouse, 
Tuskegee she knew about. And I had never heard of FAMU either until I started seeing some of the FAMU reps show up in Detroit at the same time. It's like, what? Where is? Where's the school even? Where, where, FAMU. Everybody used to say FAMU. I was like, no, it's FAMU. Um, but yeah, they, it's it, that's a uh, spot on analogy because you know he was Dr. Humphreys was super super committed to having the best and the brightest at Florida A&M University, and and he made sure that that happened. And you know, I owe him everything, honestly, to this day. You know, I still see him, and and we had a relationship. It was funny because you know my mom was like, well, I'm not sending you down there sight unseen. I ain't never heard of this school so they paid for me to visit their campus over my spring break of my senior year I went down to fam and spent the week there and talked to the head of the computer science department and you know met President Humphreys and his wife and you know that's the kind of thing they do at HBCUs you know what I mean they make sure that you're good and make sure that you have what you need to succeed they put you in that position and um, and yeah just just totally changed my life and and he's right he was right I never had to pay for anything what was the experience like as a student there? Gosh, it's 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 indescribable. I mean, it's it's the idea that you could be on a campus with ten thousand other people that look like you, that were all in pursuit of knowledge. You know, all committed to excellence. I mean, obviously not every single one of them, but you know, all committed to excellence you know, with black professors and, and it, it just, it, it's hard to put into words. It's hard to put in that. It was the best time of my life. I learned more there about, you know, just life and, and black people than any other time in my life. Um, it was the most fun. <laughs> and, uh, it was, it was everything. It was everything. It, it, it literally changed my life and changed my, my worldview and, and my, and my viewpoint on, on everything. And, and just, again, to have so many people committed to helping you succeed because they knew what that meant. And, and they knew that if you did well, then the people after you would get the opportunity to do well and, and that you'd be honoring the people before you that had to do even better to get, you know, it was just it, the history, the, the, the community, the connection that you have with, with everybody on campus. It's, it, you're not gonna get that anywhere else in the world besides at HBCU campus. You're just not, you know I mean? Anybody from Florida A&M could call me or email me today and say, listen, I'm an alum. I'm gonna be in Philadelphia tomorrow. Like, can you, and I would pick them up from the airport and I would take them out to lunch and mm -hmm. we would chop it up and, and whoever I knew um, in my network that could help them, I would connect them to that person just off the strength of them being a rattler. So, and I, and I, and I walk on this earth knowing that any other rattler that I came in contact would do the same thing for me. So it's just like, you, you're not getting that anywhere else besides an HBCU. And, and so it was, it was truly, you know, a defining and, and, and life-changing moment of, of my history. So you get your degree. You got your uh, you got your engineering degree yes. from FAM. How long how long did it take you to get that degree there? It did take five years because um, I didn't go any summers. Their curriculum was set up so be, the way their curriculum was set up, they had you taking like twelve credit hours every summer, and I'm like. I had to intern. I had to intern. I had to work. You know, I had to make money. The the scholarship that I was on, I actually, my scholarship was sponsored by NASA. So I got to go to NASA facilities in the summers and work and, you know, watch cool stuff happen with shuttles and 
astronauts and all that good stuff. Um, so I did not take any classes any summer. So that added another year onto um, how long it took me to graduate. So it took five years, but I, I got my bachelor's degree in electrical engineering with honors from Florida A&M University. And then you ended up going to get your master's degree. How long did it, did you just immediately go get your next degree or did you kind of wait it out? You start working or? I started working first. So I moved here to the Philadelphia area to start working with Lockheed Martin. I took a job as a systems engineer and because I knew I was going to, somebody else was going to pay for this master's degree. <laughs> I wasn't paying for this master's degree. So I needed some sort of tuition reimbursement situation. Um, and I did need a little bit of a break from school in general, but it was, it wasn't long. It was maybe, um, maybe two years at Lockheed before I went back for my master's degree. What's the environment like working at a place like Lockheed Martin? Oh my God. Okay then. <laughs> I mean, I... Uh, you can see the face she just made when I described that. You know, listen, I, what, what I will say about Lockheed is this. It, it afforded me the means and the opportunity to do all of the things that I'm doing right now. So in, with, with, with all of that, I can't say nothing bad about Lockheed because it's actually, you know, on paper, it's a very good job. It's a very good job. It's a very good company to work for as far as salary, as far as benefits, oh, all that stuff. So, but, but culture wise, I don't know what it's like now. I haven't worked there in, 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 a, in a lot of years, but um, at the time... It wasn't great. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It wasn't great. There, there, there weren't, a, or at least there, they weren't obvious to me. There weren't a lot of opportunities for growth there for people of color. Um, I didn't feel like fighting every day for those opportunities. You know, I mean, you get tired after a while. You're like, you know what? Fuck it. This shit ain't, it ain't worth it. You know what I mean? Just Absolutely. for this paycheck. So, um, you know, there were some great people there. I, I, I made friends there. I, I can't say that I'm still connected to anybody I used to work with there. Actually, no, nobody that's not of color. I, I, I still have black friends from Lockheed that are friends to this day. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was tough because the, the work is not super, well, at least the work I was doing was not super exciting. Um, there were a lot of heritage systems. It was a top secret environment. So you really, you weren't at liberty to discuss it with anybody else outside of your group. Um, so that made it a very isolating experience. You know, I worked in a room with no windows. And so it just, and, and again, you, you could only talk about what you were doing with the people in your group. You couldn't even go down the hall to another room and tell somebody what you were doing because it was top secret work. So um, it, it made it fairly isolating and very uh, boring, you know, to some degree and, and repetitive. So um, because you do have these old heritage government systems that that run on code that was 30 years old and you're just basically band-aiding and patching it up and and trying to make it limp along until they finally make the investment in the new thing. Um, so it wasn't the most fulfilling work and the fulfilling time in my life. And it really did kind of serve as a means to an end. Absolutely. Effectively, so you end up going to Penn because now you're back here, in Pennsylvania. You go to Penn, the Ivy League. You ended up in an Ivy League school, right. and what was that like? Especially when you think about your undergrad experience at FAMU to go all the way to the damn near opposite end of the spectrum at a Ivy like right. Penn. Honestly, I, I, I on Penn was horrible. Penn was from from the very very beginning. It was it was really just not a great experience for me. Um, 
They, the program I got in was a program that was sponsored by Lockheed called Systems Engineering at Penn. And you had to you had to get into that program at the job. So you needed your manager recommendation. You had to be interviewed by three other upper level managers. You had to give them transcripts, all that other stuff. And so you had to be admitted into this program at Lockheed before you could go to Penn. Now, granted, admission into the program at Lockheed did not guarantee admission into the program at Penn. You still had to get into Penn to do the program, but you had to get into the program first so that they would pay because what they did was um, this particular program at Lockheed, they paid for a school in advance. So it wasn't a reimbursement program. They paid for you to go. They actually gave you time off of work each week to go to class and you got a stipend for books as well. Um, and it was generally accepted at Penn that if you made it into the program at Lockheed, you would be admitted into Penn. And no one else before me had had an issue getting into Penn if they made it into this program it at Lockheed. It sounds like you were the first one to have an issue getting in there. I don't know, but I, I know I had an issue. So <laughs> I, I hadn't heard of anybody else that had had an issue before me, but I know I had an issue. So, um, so I get into the program at Lockheed, I apply to Penn, I'm waiting patiently to get my acceptance letter so I could start this program. Time is ticking away. I'm supposed to be heading to Penn in the fall. And I get a letter from the head of the Department of Telecommunications and Networking at Penn. Um, it maybe was 10 days before the start of the fall semester. I never got a letter from the university itself saying, yes, you're in, no, you're not in. I get a letter, actually, I don't even think I got a letter, period. As a matter of fact, I did not get a letter. I got a phone call. Um, I got a voicemail. I didn't even get the phone call. I got a voicemail. Got a voicemail. I got a voicemail from the head of the uh, tele telecommunications networking engineering department at like 8.30 at night on my work phone. So you were trying to avoid having to have this conversation with me, basically. Absolutely. You know, and he calls me and he leaves his voicemail and he's like, you know, hi, Miss Humphrey, this is so-and-so from the blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, we are not gonna be able to grant your admission to the University of Pennsylvania, TCOM program. He said, because, you know, your, your GPA was good, but um, not quite up to the standard that we expect at Penn. And we don't really consider Florida A&M University a top school from which to recruit our graduate students. He said that on the phone. I, I, should, I wish I could have saved that recording some kind of way to have it to this day, but he said that. And I, whew, you talk about the heat start coming up through my, woo, Jesus. I can, I can feel that heat in here right now. Jesus, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. So I'm listening to this message the next day because, again, he sent it at like 830 at night to my work email, a voicemail. Never got a letter from Penn at all saying you're in, you're out. Ten days before the semester starts, he sends me this voicemail saying this. So I'm like, OK, here we go. And so I tried to go through the proper channels. I went to the, um, the folks that administrated the program at Lockheed and I said, listen, this is what they're telling me. I never got a letter saying anything, but this guy is, you know, basically being racist against my university and, you know, yada, 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 yada. 
And they were, and they basically told me, well, there's really nothing we can do. I mean, acceptance into our program doesn't guarantee acceptance into Penn, so we can't make them take you, blah, 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 blah. We really wish there was something because you would have been great. I was like, oh, there's something I can do. I said, oh, I said, okay, so y'all not going to support me? No problem. So I wrote a very nice letter. <laughs> to and I sent it return receipt registered mail return receipt to the president of the university who was Judy Roden at the time I sent it to the head of the school of engineering C school of engineering and applied science I sent it to the head of the telecommunications and networking department all registered mail return receipt and just outline the whole thing because what was happening I'm like what you fail to understand is that I know who else is in your in this program that from my company alone there was a there was a woman who bragged about the fact that she was at Penn and she only graduated school with a C average. She only got out of undergrad with a C average, but she bragged about the fact that I got a C. I had a C average. I'm still at Penn. You know what I mean? So your 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 GPA excuse doesn't hold water. Not at all. Um, and one of my friends at the time, who also graduated from Florida A and M University, had just started the program the year before. So you have a rattler in your program. So that argument is null and void as well. The fact that you don't recruit from fam. So he says Florida A&M is not a top school yet. There's you, a regular in your program as we speak. So he basically just had to find a reason to shit on your recommendation and just say, nope. And, and I guess he, I don't know if he felt like she slid under the radar and he didn't want any more of those little HBCU darkies at his, in his program. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what, the, I don't know what the motivation was. How does she get in here? Make sure none, no more of them get in here. Um, but whatever the motivation was, I wasn't having it. And so I laid out the whole story. I was like, you know, I was super excited to get into this very highly competitive and selective program at my company. You can imagine my shock when I received a phone call 10 days before the start of the semester, you know, telling me this, and I laid out what he said, and I laid out my, my, my counter argument to both of those things. And I said, well, I don't want this to have to get any uglier, but it can. And I said, I have friends in the media that I can call on, and I have an attorney on standby as well to flesh this thing out. So what y'all gonna do? That was pretty much the gist of the letter. Um, I got a letter back from Judy Roden, who was the president of the University of Pennsylvania at the time. We are so sorry. Oh my God. Da, 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 da. We welcome you into the University of Pennsylvania class with such and such and such and such. Uh, conveniently enough, that head of that department was on sabbatical that semester. So, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and we will put you in touch with and we will do the. Oh, they were tripping all over themselves to, to get me in that program. So I ended up being a semester behind because, again, he didn't, he didn't call me until 10 days before the semester started. So I hadn't registered for any classes or anything but you know I um, I ended up going starting in January of that next year and when you if you could have seen the look on the faces of the folk at Lockheed when I went to them with that letter and said okay y'all can get y'all money ready because I'll be going to Penn in January thanks for nothing and and that was it that was it that's incredible and people will hear this story and just Everyone's got a story similar to that where they had to fight their way into something where they got low bridged out of it or, or told that, well, you know, you, your your numbers are good, but they don't match our high lofty standards and right. and all this. Uh, <laughs> 
the heritage program that that it tends to be in there. You end up getting the degree from Penn, which I'm guessing is probably a bigger F you to them than anything else. Not only they tried to keep you out, you got in and you got the degree and you succeeded. Basically, basically. But it was it was a fight the whole time. It was a struggle the whole time. Um, It was one of the hardest things I've ever done because working 40 hours a week and then trying to study is is super challenging. and, and, you know, at the end of the day, it, it looks really good on a resume and, and everybody is very impressed by the fact that I have that degree. Oh my God, Penn, oh my God, Penn. But honestly, I don't see, besides the, the social capital, I, I have not really realized any benefit at all from having it. It's pretty incredible to think that A woman of her ability and her talent had to go through all of that shit to get a degree that ended up not having as big of an impact on her career as you would think. But as we will find out as we go through the rest of this episode, it turned out that everything she did and all her hard work was not only just beginning, it would damn sure pay off. And this beat you here underneath you. I want to shout. I told y'all. I told y'all. You are going to get some guest beat makers if you shoot your music over to us at jscradio at gmail.com. If it's good, it gets on. This one's great. It's from the homie Chef K-Dot back in my hometown, the Motor City. He's always cooking up something in the kitchen. This one's called Ghost, and it's going to take you to the break. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 108th episode of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. We're going to roll with the chef for a second, and then we'll be back with more with Stephanie Humphrey after this. You're listening to The People's Podcast. I'm not going to be responsible for what happens next. This is JSC Radio. Hey now, J. Scott Smith here. Of course, you know, I am the host of JSC Radio, which you have heard on Stitcher from the very beginning. Because in case a lot of you don't remember, Stitcher was the first major podcast platform to pick up my show. And now they want to give something back to each and every one of you listeners on Stitcher. Introducing Stitcher Premium. You can listen to some of your favorite shows ad free, mind you. With Stitcher Premium for only $4.99 a month or, if you prefer, $34.99 a year. You can get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and so much more. Listen to shows like the Fantasy Footballers ad-free. Or you can get shows like Dunk on Basketball and, of course, JSC Radio. Simply go to Stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today. That's Stitcher.com slash premium premium to sign up today and when you go there drop in the promo code jsc and get you one free month of stitcher premium don't ever say i ain't do nothing for y'all remember it's stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and get one month free by dropping that promo code jsc it's just that simple baby get on stitcher premium right now and you can get the best in podcasting You're listening to The People's Podcast. You can't say F you to your granddaughter? I just did, Morty. Here's dessert. you. This is J-S-C Radio. Don't hate the player, hate the game, son. What up, it's your girl, Tech Life Steph, and it's time for your 60-second tech break. 
I don't know about y'all, but I am long past the days of answering phone calls from numbers I don't recognize. So since you were gonna decline the call anyway, the latest version of iOS makes it a little bit easier for you. You can now silence unknown callers, so any number that's not already in your contacts, in your email, or in your Siri suggestions will get automatically sent to voicemail. The call will still show up in your recents feed, so if you do need the number later and you actually wanna call them back, you can. Just head into your settings, scroll down to phone, and then turn on silence unknown callers. It's a little thing, but a big thing, and one of those simple tricks that makes using our smartphones that much easier for us. Follow me all around the web at Tech Life Steph, and meet me right back here next week for another 60 second tech break. This is the 108th episode of The People's Podcast. You're listening to J. Scott Confidential, a production of JSC Media, but you can also call the show JSC Radio. Welcome back. J. Scott Smith here. I want to thank y'all, as always, for supporting the show across all the different podcast providers, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Radio.com and CastBox, Audio Boom and Player FM, and of course, if you're listening on Spotify and anywhere else worldwide where you get your podcasts. Again, follow the show on social media. It's at JSC Radio on Twitter, at JSC Radio on Instagram, and it's JSC Radio on Facebook. Be sure to drop a subscription on that Facebook page. So let's get back down to it. We were talking with Stephanie Humphrey, and we were just coming out of the incredible ordeal that she went through to get into graduate school to get that second degree from the University of Pennsylvania. But now, after she's gone through all this, she's decided she's wanted to make a pivot and go into media where she begins an entirely new life that has been three times as successful. Let's head back over to Flourish in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where we were allowed to sit down and do this interview. Thanks so much to Laura DeFrancesco and everyone over at Flourish and Dean Street Law for this, by the way. It's time to get back to it. Here's Stephanie Humphrey as we pick it up from Flourish talking about the advancement she made in her career once she decided she was done with engineering. This is J. Scott Confidential, baby. This is a presentation of JSC Media. So we, so interestingly, we can transition a little bit. You're this engineer, Lockheed Martin. You've you've done. You're just this brilliant math genius. You've done all the all this work. You've worked for NASA. Gives you an internship. How the hell did you end up in media with it, with, with with knuckleheads like me <laughs> when? There's the, the world is your oyster. This was the this was the pearl you wanted to grab is this. What led you to media and getting into this side of things? It was God's plan. And that it wasn't me. I I never had any aspirations to do what I'm doing now. I never was the kid that, you know, said, I'm gonna be on TV one day. Yeah, never. Nothing. Anything. So I can only say that it was God's plan because it wasn't mine. You know, it had to be somebody's. <laughs> and it was not mine. Um I was, I was, again, we, you know, we talked about the fact that I was very frustrated at Lockheed. I'm in the room with no windows. I'm in a cubicle all day, every day in front of a computer. And I just didn't see that for myself for the rest of my life. So I was trying a bunch of different things at the time to figure out what my exit strategy was going to be. I was leaning more towards fitness because I excuse me, I was working out and I had gotten certified to teach group fitness. So I was teaching kickboxing on the side. And that was right when um, the curves 
franchises blew up and they were all over the place and they were creating these spaces for women to come and work out. And I had I had benefited from a space like that. It wasn't a curved franchise, but a woman, um, an old woman. I got to shout out Miss Betty right quick. <laughs> Miss Betty was like 70 years old, 70 plus. She was stronger than anybody I knew. She was more cut than any woman I had ever met in person. Um, she was a big proponent of weight training for women. And she created a space in her home where black women could come and get healthy. And she pushed us, you know, really hard and we lifted weights and we got strong. And that philosophy stayed with me as far as fitness was concerned. The idea that, that women need to lift and lift heavy and you're not going to look like a man and you're not going to it's not going to be that thing. But um, I felt like the environment that she was able to create where, you know, we didn't have to worry about what we look like and whether our stomachs were showing and, you know, you didn't come to the gym in hair and makeup like I see at some LA fitnesses in, in the area. Uh, <laughs> we've all done and whatnot and scared to sweat because you're worried about what the guys are looking and this and that and the third. You know, she created this safe space where women could just come and, and work hard and get in shape and care about their health. And I said, I could do this for black women and replicate it and it could be like the curves for black women. So that was that was my my um, plan at the time, my exit strategy and my plan at the time. But as it happens, mm. one of the women that I worked out with, with Miss Betty, managed a clothing store and asked me to be in a fashion show. And she said, come, just model some stuff. You know, we'll show something, put you with something to show your little stomach off and you'll get a discount on whatever you buy at the end of the night. So that, that was like, sign me up, you know? So what turned out as, you know, it was just a favor for a friend, honestly. But there was a woman there that had an agency and she had brought some of her modeling students to, to be in the show as well. And she's like, do you model professionally? Oh my God, you were so great. Oh. I'm like, no, I'm not six foot tall. I'm not a size zero. I'm not, you know, blah, blah, blah. You should think about it. You know, you were great. And that was the seed that was kind of planted. And even then it was just, maybe this will be something I can do on the side and it'll be a nice distraction from the, you know, numbers and, and code and everything I have to do all day. And then there'll be a couple extra dollars to go to the mall and, and buy some stuff with. And so that's what it was for a long time until I started um, getting in front of the camera. Once I realized I could actually just run my mouth and be mm -hmm. myself and and help people. You see the you see the influence that being in front of a camera has on people and you see how they how they change when you tell them you're on TV and how they how they listen more and how they take what you say more seriously and 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 um so yeah, it was, it became a thing where I was like I could probably I could probably do something with this. So so let's see. So, you know, it was a process. It was definitely a years long process before I left my job. Um, and then it was still, even after I left my job, it was a years long process before Tech Life Steph was born. But um, that fashion show was, was the seed that, that was planted. So how long was it before you finally just took the plunge and said, all right, this is what I'm doing. Leave Lockheed, go into this, this media space. So from the time I did that fashion show to the time I left Lockheed, it was probably easily four years, four or five years. And um, when I left, I wasn't doing anything in the tech space yet. I was, I was acting, 
I was a model at QVC. So that was kind of like a part-time job because I was down there all the time. That was where I was getting the bulk of my income from, from QVC. Um, and I was hosting a lot of things. I was doing a lot of spokesperson work, a lot of um, industrial videos for some pharmaceutical companies and, and things like that. And just trying to figure out where I wanted to go because at the time I thought um, entertainment reporting was gonna be my thing, you know, red carpet, who are you wearing, all that, all that good stuff. Um, so, between that time and the time Tech Life Steph was born, was I was traffic reporting too, as you know. Exactly. The, the traffic kind of got in there too, but it was about five years, um, almost four, about four or five years between the time I left my job and the time Tech Life Steph was born. What was it that inspired Tech Life Steph? Because that is the space that you, that is your that that's your lane. That's that's your shit. And what was it about that that jumped out and you found, okay, this is this is it for me. Like for me, I knew that if I was going to go into media, I was either going to cover something dealing with sports or something dealing with a social issue. And in this case, this podcast is kind of kind of leaped across both of those lines all the time. What was it about the tech life aspect of it? Where between technology, we're talking about internet, we're talking about social media, all these different things. Why was it that that was the thing that really jumped out to you more than anything else? It was. It wasn't me again. It was God. <laughs> God and a mentor. I um, at the time I was working. I was reporting traffic for a network called Tango, which was trying to be. It was a startup that was trying to be like the Weather Channel for traffic. So it was a 24-hour traffic network. I was reporting on air the drive time um, commute, and so you know, thinking I'm going to do these entertainment reporting things, and I I was able to get a meeting with Payne Brown, who was the vice president of diversity, I believe, at Comcast at the time. I had been trying to get a meeting with his brother for like a year, and I knew people that knew him, and you know, folks was trying to be real stingy with the connect and the whole nine. That's how it always goes. Always, and, uh, but I, and I can't remember how I actually finally got connected to him, but I got on his calendar and I had this meeting with him, and at the time, I believe Comcast owned some percentage of TV1 at the time. I think Kathy Hughes has since bought bought that back and owns it outright herself now. But at the time, I, if I'm not mistaken, Comcast owned some percentage of TV1 and was very invested in some of their programming. And there was a show on TV1 called TV1 Access, which was like Access Hollywood, but all of the black celebrities, a focus on black celebrities and things like that. And Sean Robinson, who hosted Access Hollywood also hosted TV One Access. And my intention, I set my intention when I got this meeting with, with Payne to um, be the host of, of TV One Access, or at least a correspondent for the show. I was like, Sean doesn't need to be greedy. She doesn't need to take all the jobs. Like, she can do Access Hollywood. I can do TV One Access. So, um, got this meeting, went out, bought this outfit. When I tell you, oh my God, this outfit. <laughs> <laughs> Just the dress was like fucking sausage casing and I had this wig on and you know just the hair and makeup and the lashes and just this whole costume basically. It was January. I'll never forget it. It was January. I was freezing because I did not have any stockings on and oh the, and the suede shoes I bought which were fabulous and they were the only shoes that went with this dress were a half size too small but I didn't care because they were the shoes 
issues that needed to happen with this dress to make this man love me. This man was going to love me and put me on TV. He was going to be so overwhelmed by my talent and my beauty and my intelligence and, and the full package. And I'm walking up into his office, you know, ready to kick in the door and, and just wow him, you know, beyond his wildest dreams. So get to Comcast, get to this meeting, walk in, you know, hi, I'm Stephanie Humphrey, wig, makeup, the whole nine, lashes. And I said, you know, he's like, oh, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I'm like, well, you know, I was an engineer, but now I want to be an entertainment. So I launch into this whole thing. And he's sitting there, you know, on some Kanye, I'm going to let you finish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he lets me finish. And he's like, yeah, the silence just like that. And I'm sitting there like, um, <laughs> hello, Bueller. And he's, and he's like, and he's like. What are you doing? And I was like, you know, my bottom lip starts quivering. I'm like, I ain't gonna cry in front of this man. I'm not gonna cry. <laughs> not gonna break I'm you. I'm not. He's not gonna break me. He said. I said, I don't understand what you mean. He said, What are you doing? Like with such disdain in his voice and on his face. And I'm like, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> and he said, um, He said, You walked in here. You mentioned you were an engineer in passing and you haven't talked about it again. He said, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Honestly, just, I was like, I don't know. Like, tell me. Right. <laughs> he said, I know a million pretty girls that want to be entertainment reporters. He said, I don't know anybody that looks like you that could do what you could be doing. He said, what are you doing? And God to hand, right hand to God, I said, I could be a tech life expert. Literally, that's what I, that's all I said. And he was like, and tech life stuff was born. Well, damn. Seriously, and it literally happened just like that. I was like, oh, snap. I could do technology on TV. Like it all, it, it just all, God put the entire vision in front of me in that moment. In that moment, I said, I could be the technology correspondent for the Today Show. Because at the time, I watched the Today Show all the time. I didn't really watch GMA back then. Um, the, I loved the Today Show, though. I was like, I could be the technology correspondent for the Today Show. Literally, in that moment. This was 10 years ago. And that's been, that's been the goal since the beginning. And that, has, that was the goal up till now, now that, that I'm doing it. you know. So 10 years ago, 2000, wow, 10, it's still crazy. It's 2011. So it's nine years. It's still wild to say that 2011 was that long ago. But two, but nine years ago, you have this epiphany, epiphany mm-hmm. just this moment where it's just like, oh shit, I can do this, and you got to work on doing it. Yeah. And I see the 60 second videos. Like I said earlier, I can't do shit in 60 seconds. I can't order food. I can't. I can barely say my damn name in 60 seconds. 
you're able to get that much information into it. Where did the idea to do it in 60 seconds come from, first and foremost? My own non-existent attention span. Um, you know, I think about the idea, everybody's like, oh my God, YouTube is where it's at. And you like, honestly, I can't even watch a YouTube video if it's longer than like two and a half minutes. I don't, I don't want to watch it. It has to be super engaging to make me sit and be like, oh wow. Yeah. Your life is so interesting to me. I want to know more about this thing. Um, so just understanding attention spans, not wanting to overtax myself content wise because shooting videos is work and the longer the video is, the more work you got to do. Um, so I didn't want to overtax myself with, with what I was doing. And I was also, uh, being a little bit strategic because I was specifically trying to grow my Instagram following and Instagram didn't have IGTV when I started the videos. So the video time was limited to 60 seconds. And it is interesting when you bring that up because IGTV has become, that's like a secondary conduit for like this podcast, for example, because you mentioned like the attention spans on YouTube where at one time YouTube's limit was I think 10 minutes or 12 minutes on videos or something like that. Now they can go for hours on end, but you're droning on about nonsense. Nobody wants, ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) You have to have something very compelling to hook me for more than 10 minutes on YouTube. And when I think about that, your 60 seconds falls right in there in that 60 second window on Instagram you can people can scroll their timeline and get what they're looking for from you in 60 seconds if you had to go a little longer there's IGTV which i guess like i said for this podcast i take in like usually 7 to 12 minute cuts of interviews and put them on there rather than just simply put i can't do a long form 1 hour thing is a lot of times people don't have time for that like you mentioned and you find that lane and little by little more things start to come together because you still you have a great speaking voice I say this as someone walking around with the, with these pipes of mine. You have a great, you have a great speaking voice, and I know you're very engaging because you're very real. Like you don't, it it comes off of you in the room that you're very genuine. What was the uh, for you? What was that moment where you could kind of tell, like, okay, now I'm starting to gain some traction doing this, where people are really into what I have to say? I would say um, it was it was it was a while ago. I kind of knew where where this was going, but. Um, the, the, the path, you know, 60 second tech break is, is only about two years old. But when I started, I first started with my own blog, um, called a matter of life and tech. And, you know, you get to that point where, you know, people start sending you stuff and they want you to review their stuff and you're like, Oh snap, you know, I'm getting a little bit of, you know, notoriety. Um, but then I started writing for the root, uh, com and ebony.com and, and a couple features in the magazine and things like that. And then I, uh, I was able to parlay that onto Fox 29. And that was sort of when, you know, I saw the, the big picture coming together because I was on there every week. It was like Tech Tuesday was a thing for a year and a half on, on Fox. And, um, and that really helped, you know, sort of catapult me to that next level. That, that's kind of when I knew like, all right, you know, this tech life thing is a thing. It's a real thing. It's, it's, a, it's a sustainable thing. And it's something that I can sort of parlay and, and make a living from as well as um, help people understand technology with. What was maybe the most difficult thing about this transition that you've kind of made into this, especially since you, again, you have the epiphany in the office that, oh, shit, this is what I can do. What was the tough part about floating over into this space. Well, it's funny. Um, it was on some old Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> <laughs> because when I made the decision to, to, to take this pivot, 
I just kind of automatically assumed the world would be the path to my door because I had at that point already had like almost 10 years of media experience reporting traffic on TV, you know, doing, I did do some red carpet interviews for some media outlets. I, I was on QVC. I was, I was doing all the things media wise, um, to, to prepare myself to stand in, in, to be in front of a camera and talk to people about things. And, oh, by the way, I got two engineering degrees. So the idea that I could position myself as a tech expert seemed like a no brainer to me. It was not that way. Nobody gave a fuck about what other experience that I had um, in the tech space. And nobody would give me an opportunity to, to get on air, to get on the radio, to, to do anything and talk about tech on any platform. Like literally, it was just a whole bunch of, that's why I started my blog. Because I said, well, I gotta, you know, proof of concept, basically. I gotta show people that I can write, at least, and that I have the, um, the, the know-how and the skill to break down a complex text, tech topic or, or do a demo that can help people understand how to use a certain device or something like that. So that was a very humbling experience because I literally just thought that this was just going to be the easiest thing because I'm an engineer and I've been on TV, so why wouldn't I be a tech expert? Like, and it, it just did not happen like that. It did not happen. Like, I had to start over from scratch. And when it finally does start coming together, you go Fox 29 here in Philadelphia. You're doing your own. You're doing your own thing. The 60 second tech talks. You're kind of, you're, you're you don't do the blog as much, but you still get out there. I know. How did Good Morning America become a thing? You said the Today Show. You hit GMA. Right. So you were there. Close enough, it's right? close enough. Close enough. So um, I took a bit of a detour after I had done uh, after I had worked for Fox 29 here in Philadelphia. I. Um, I took a bit of a detour. I guess it wasn't really a detour necessarily, but it it, it had limited me in what I could do. But I I was I was at a point where you know freelance life was a little little hard, and Mama needed a check. Absolutely. Um, so I took a job with HP as their on-air spokesperson for QVC. Hmm. So I was the person that got on TV and sold laptops and printers all day long. And it was a it was a very lucrative job. It, it gave me that breathing room just to save up some more money. Benefits were nice. Direct deposit is amazing. You know, man, it's a beautiful thing. So I just needed a little break to again regroup, make some money, save some money, figure out what my next thing was going to be. Um, and I gave myself two years, and I was there literally two years and like three months. I said I'll do this for two years. You know, I'll, I'll I'm still getting getting some exposure because QVC is in like 30 million homes and um, nationwide. Um, but I was, I couldn't do anything else. Like I literally couldn't do anything else while I was there as far as um, other media because I couldn't do, I couldn't talk about any other products that competed with anything that HP made, which was everything. Yeah. Or I couldn't, you know, shill on behalf of anybody that was an HP competitor, which was everybody else in the tech space. And I couldn't work with any other retailers because they competed with QVC. So I was, I was hamstrung basically, you know, but the money made it worth it. The money paid for the exclusivity at the time. Um, after I left there, actually right as I was leaving, because God makes a plan that is more perfect than anything I could ever think of, um, I got a call from, because I had done, before I started at QVC, I had done a couple of tech segments for this 
regional talk show um, called the Paul Violas Show, and he was like the security expert. So I'd go, I would go in and talk about um, tech from a security standpoint and things like that. I'd done like two segments for him. Um, and one of the producers on that show ended up going to the Harry show. Harry Connick Jr. had a talk show for two I years. I do remember that. Yeah. And she ended up going to the Harry show and she called me. She reached out and she was like, oh my God, I remember you from Paul Violas. We're trying to get all of our experts lined up. So we're reaching out to like, you know, therapists and chefs and, and tech people. Mm -hmm. And we would love to have you be our tech person on Harry. So I was Harry's tech uh, contributor for the two years he was on air and then he didn't get get picked up for a third season so now you know it's like back to the drawing board and so at that time you know again a national morning show was always the goal so I made the investment because there there comes a point in your career and I mean maybe some people don't get to the point maybe they just always have these advocates and mentors and sponsors that they say you should have that catapult them to that next level but I didn't have that. I did not know anybody in, you know, at ABC. I didn't know anybody, you know, at NBC that could connect me to somebody that could get me on one of these shows. So I actually hired a publicist at the time. And I was just like, listen, I just want to get on a daytime morning show. That's, that's, that's what I need you to do for me. And I started working with her in June of... When was that? 2017? And I was on GMA in August. Well, damn. So two months. Right. She's very good. Aaliyah Crawford is her name. What's her name again? Aaliyah Crawford. She's very, very good. It, it's an investment. It, you know, it's not cheap, but it was an investment that was totally worth it. If she got you on GMA in two months, damn right you got to spend the money on that. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. What's that experience been like working like the when you go onto the GMA set and you got Michael Strahan and and Sarah, the, and yeah every how is that? It's it's amazing. It's amazing. It's where I'm. It's where I know I'm supposed to be. I'm very comfortable there because I know that that was where God told me I was going to be ten years ago. Um, and and they're all great. And it's just whenever I get a chance to use that platform to help people understand technology, it's a it's a blessing to me. Um, I'm always like uber prepared because I understand like we ain't got time to wait. You know what I mean? Like I, and, and 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 I'm and I'm known for that. Like my reputation there sort of precedes me because people know that I'm going to come with content that is compelling, that I'm going to hit it. We ain't going to have to do a whole bunch of takes. We ain't going to have to, you know what I mean? It's like, so it, it's just a really, really great experience. I've been able to start cultivating some relationships with some folks like, you know, Robin and I are, are, are casual acquaintances now and we're, and we're talking about, you know, doing some work together. And so it's it's just been an awesome, awesome experience, honestly. And, and, and it's just the sky's the limit. For all that you do on TV and up until recently on radio and everything else, the one thing I've noticed that you're also a big advocate for is people and their social media behavior slash activity. The second episode of this podcast, going back to 2016, I did a commentary on social media about how it drives me nuts, how people are on social media. It's like, do they understand what they're saying? It's like one of those things like, do you know people can see you? Right. <laughs> like that sort of that to, to take from from Cat Williams once said, you, you know people can see you, like, like that sort of thing. And we see it in the way that at a macro level, you know who down in DC, for example, 
he is he has become the poster child for Twitter. But people have used social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, to either spread false information or to simply ruin their brand. You do a you you've been doing a series of lectures, and it's been to the one audience that probably needs to hear it more than anything else because they're the ones you can still get to. These are kids. I've seen it with because you talk to middle school kids and high school kids, and please tell the people about till death do us tweet. Till death till death do you tweet. Please tell people about that and what it is you do and the importance of people getting their shit together on social media. Together till death do you tweet. Till death do you tweet is is my ministry as I like to call it. Um, it was born out of a need to provide students with content that wouldn't put them to sleep. Uh, when I was still working at Lockheed, I've been doing Tell Death You Tweet since I was still an engineer at Lockheed, and I would be invited into um, classrooms for career day by friends of mine that were educators. And because I worked in a classified environment, there just wasn't a whole lot I could say about what I did. And <clears throat> excuse me. And um, so I came up with this idea. It used to be called What Happens on the Internet Stays on the Internet Forever because I was playing off the little Vegas slogan. Um, so that's what it was back then. So I kind of came up with this idea that I would talk to them about something that they actually cared about and, and just being responsible on social media and, and that whole thing. And I said, well, you know, when people would ask me to come in, I say, well, I want to talk about this. And then I'll, ha I'll be happy to answer any questions about what it takes to be an engineer afterwards. But, you know, I'm limited in what I can say about my actual job. So let's talk about, let's have this conversation. And so it just sort of evolved uh, over time, over years. And, you know, we got into a space online where it just got really dark for young people. Kids, kids are killing themselves, you know, behind yeah. the, the cyberbullying and, and the stuff that people are, you know, new pictures that people are posting online and stuff like that. Like kids are literally dying because of the stuff that's being posted on social media. So it became very important to me to help them understand how to avoid that you know, worst case consequence, basically. And um, so I'd say in 2012 is when I kind of uh, put some structure around it, you know, some marketing. It became Till Death Do You Tweet, logo, marketing, monetization, that whole thing. And, and now, you know, I go into schools and I help people, I help students understand just how to be a better digital citizen and, and how to, how to protect your brand, because that, that was the piece that was missing. That was the piece that I didn't have, uh, back when I was going to career days is that understanding of personal brand. Absolutely. And, um, so when I, when I sort of keyed in on what it was that students would actually care about, because, you know, otherwise I'm just another grown up telling them stop acting stupid on Instagram. Um, when I finally keyed in on what they actually cared about, which is this brand, which was something they had never actually considered. Because I still walk into schools th to this day and say, you know, we have this conversation about what is a brand, and they say, oh, company, Nike, da, Jordan, whatever. And when I say who in here thinks they're a brand, like three hands go up, like across the board, you know, without fail. And I'm like, ah, well, if nobody ever told you before today, you about to learn something new, you know what I mean? Because you have a personal brand. So, you know, once you once you give them that ownership, everything else 
makes sense, you know? And um, so, so yeah, so I do it for students. I have a, a version that I do for parents that helps them understand what their kids are doing online, how to have that conversation with them about their brand and, and social media responsibility resources. And then there's TDDYT Pro, which is for professionals because, you know, it's, it's the grown folk out here acting just as silly as, as the kids. And it's like, yeah, you got digital footprint too. And if you work, you know what I mean? You can't afford to make any of those same mistakes either. So so there's three versions of Till Death Do You Tweet. Um, and I'm just trying to get people to be a little bit more mindful online. That's all. Stop acting up on, on the internet. You're trying to get people to be smart because, and you get them as kids where at least if you can, if you can cut that off early, because yeah. we were talking about this before we started recording a few years ago at the uh, baseball all-star game in DC, Josh Hader, who pitches for the Milwaukee Brewers, gives up this massive home run in the all-star game. And as he's on the mound already kind of shook because he just gave up this home run and on his first major national TV appearance pitching in Milwaukee because they weren't the Brewers weren't that big time of a team at the time. Somebody goes on Twitter and starts slowly running down his Twitter feed back to when he was a teenager. Because now we're at that point where these guys are 22, 23, 24 years old. Twitter's been around since 2008. That's 12 years ago. So they hopped on there 12, 13, 14 years old and said some really, really stupid things. And a lot of the stupid, I think it was, I think it was a lot of racist things that he said got blown up. And you know, people will quote tweet stuff or they will screenshot it. And so before he's off the mound and into the, and into the clubhouse, this thing has gone nuts on Twitter to where I think his mom or one or his brother hands him a phone is like, Bro, you got to see this. You in trouble. And that's the thing. And and that's what this is intended to do. To try to head that off at the pass, if you will. I mean, I get students all the time that hit me in my DMs. And um, I saved a tweet from a student that uh, she said... Um, learned about my brand from Tech Life stuff and four years later, I'm finally proud of it. Like, that's the kind of impact I wanna have, you know? I mean, kids hit me all the time. I changed all of my social because you said I need to think about my brand. Can you can you go and look at my new bio or, you know, see if this username is or so? It's like, they, they get it. And, and especially now in this time, of influencers being a thing, cancel culture being a thing. They understand that, you know, it's important to sort of um, make sure that the stuff that you're putting out there is going to be something that can stand the test of time. So, so it's, it's been, it's been great. It's been a labor of love. It's been wonderful to see the messaging sink in uh, with young people. Cause, cause with the, with the grown folk, it, it, I think it's still a little bit like, eh, it's just, it's just Twitter, but um, but it's been great to um, to see the messaging sink in, and and honestly, it it does boil down to something as simple as you know, if I'm saving one life, you know that that's how seriously I take it, and if I'm saving one life because one kid decides not to post something you know horrible about someone else because something could happen or you know one or, or you see it and you don't comment so now that person being bullied doesn't have to see that one more comment on top of the hundred others that they that they've been getting all day then then i did my job i hear because that is a theme i notice when i in the videos that i've seen is that you're you're not just simply doing this just to teach them how to cover their ass five years down the line you want to keep them because there are kids being bullied there are gay kids being outed on on twitter and being mocked and made fun of black kids being racially harassed women young girls being being harassed and 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 shamed and all this other all this other nonsense 
that is a that's a way to really hell you are helping a, a whole lot of people and i noticed that just from what i saw for the videos and the stuff you do that that's what jumped out to me the most is how serious this is for you this is not just some branding a branding opportunity ironically this is not just a branding opportunity for you this is very very real absolutely not and and you know i've i've done workshops with kids where I had to, I, I didn't have to stay, but I stayed, you know, 45 minutes afterwards because there's 20 kids around me and the girl in front of me is in tears because she can't take it anymore because she told her teacher that they won't stop posting and, and she told her parents and everybody is, is, you know, parents tend to think that it's not that big a deal and that you, um, you know, everybody gets bullied. Everybody, you know, grow up, get a thick skin, toughen up. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not the same. It's not the same as when you had that one bully at school that didn't like you and maybe in the lunchroom they might push you or take your lunch money or whatever. And then you get to go home and you didn't have to deal with it again until the next day. And maybe not even until, you know, the next week or whatever because you didn't even see them. But you know, with, with cyberbullying, it's relentless. Like they're getting this all day long and, you know, parents unfortunately letting their kids sleep in their rooms with their phones. So now you're getting notifications at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. and the pings and the pings and the pings and you're fat, you're ugly, you should just kill yourself. We hate you, nobody likes you. And this is happening all day, constantly. So now your kid hasn't slept, they're not eating, you know, they're internalizing every single one of these messages. Um, you know, maybe they did something unfortunate where they sent a picture to somebody. Now a new picture of them or a topless picture of them is out there as well. So now you have that shame and, and stress and trauma attached to it. Um, and it's relentless. It's relentless. They don't, there, there is no situation where they can get away from it because now it's online, but, but now, you know, everybody knows it in real life too. So now you got to go to school. Everybody in school knows, even the adults know, everybody knows. And you know, some kids just don't have the tools to, to process and deal with that in a, in a healthy way. And they take that extreme option and, 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 you know, and look at suicide as a way to, to end all of it. So it's, it's, it's not, we got to understand that it's not the same type of, it's the same motivation because, you know, kids are kids, but with these new tools, it's, it's a different type of ball game you know and it, and it can get very very mean and cruel and insidious and 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 we just have to do a better job as adults taking it more seriously you made a great point there that yeah unlike when we were in we were in high school or whatever we were in middle school if you had to deal with somebody's shit you're only dealing with it from eight o'clock to, to three maybe if you played a sport with them you might have had to tolerate it or put up with put up with it in practice or something like that and you did and and i hear i still hear it from friends of mine or parents or it's like oh they should just toughen up back in our day in, in our day we we stood up to the bully we fought it out and, and then you were done with it you know what i mean you show you fought you shook hands and then you were done it's not it's not the same anymore it's really not it's insidious it's kind of a scourge on everything my one last question is how do you maintain this schedule because you can be everywhere i've seen points where one day one part of the day you're in new york city then you're back here it's like between you and jennifer caudle it's like you two are just like you're, you're like ships who pass in the night where every time i look up you're always at it how do you how do you keep yourself kind of grounded and keep it together when you have some of these really busy days and all this stuff is happening with you well the the thing about it is, is i'm not that busy every day so you take the days you have that you can to rest that's it. Some days I'm literally napping all day, you know, because I either had to work the whole day before or I know I'm going to have to work the whole day after. So um, or some days are just like I'm thinking 
about things these days. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do next and I'm and I'm thinking or I'm writing, you know, I'm working I'm finishing up a book right now. So some days are just for writing. So um, you know, thankful well, I I guess I guess not thankfully because I wouldn't mind being busier. Um, but right now, you know, as as busy as it might appear, I'm not that busy every single day. So I can make it work. So how do people get in contact with you? You you have a I think you and I both have the same idea when it comes to branding that one name goes across about eight different things. Are people able to reach out to you and actually find out more about the Till Death Do You Tweet, everything else? How do people get in contact with you for all this? So I am Tech Life Steph all across the web because branding um, and consistency. So T-E-C-H-L-I-F-E-S-T-E-P-H, Tech Life Steph. You can always send me an inbox or a DM across any social platform. Or if you would like information about Till Death Do You Tweet. It's tilldeathdutweet.com. And you're on uh, YouTube, right? Like some of the videos I've seen are even on YouTube. So. You can just search Stephanie Humphrey on YouTube and find my channel. Please subscribe. And uh, and yeah, so I'm, I'm everywhere you want to be. I'll make it a point to put the link to her YouTube page in both the description of this. And when it goes onto the YouTube video as well, I'll make sure we'll be able to cross link that over for you because many people, so many people need to see this. Stephanie Humphrey. I appreciate you taking the time out of your pretty damn busy schedule to talk to me. I it was a pleasure being able to work with you for the amount of time I worked with you too. You've always every every time I've seen you, you've always been good to people, and that's how I judge everyone is how you treat others. And you've been good to so many people. You're good to me, and I appreciate this. And I thank you so much for coming on J. Scott Confidential, also known as JSC Radio, because I have to explain the brand to people now because I had to change the name up. But it's so good for you to be here. Thank you to Laura DeFrancesco for allowing me to use this space once again to be able to do this, by the way. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it. Another one in the books. This was a supersized episode. Let me tell you, when Stephanie Humphrey is in the room, She commands respect and attention, but she's also one of the most genuinely good people you will ever meet. She don't take no shit, but at the same time, the level of compassion and passion, which are two different things, that she has for not only this business, but for what she does, it's just mind-blowing. We'll have the link to get to her YouTube page in the description of this podcast. You can follow her on social media all over the place at Tech Life Steph, T-E-C-H Life Steph. Be sure to drop a follow on her. She's an inspiration to so many young black women who are out there, not just trying to be journalists, but just young black women in general. Plus, the message she has for people getting it together on social media. Man, listen, you want to be able to book and be a part of one of those seminars. Be sure to hit Steph up and she'll be able to let you know what she's doing. But her schedule is hella busy. I want to thank each and every one of y'all support this show. I want to thank Laura DeFrancesco again and everybody over at Flourish in Westchester, Pennsylvania for allowing Steph and I to sit down and have all the time in the world to do that interview you just heard. Be sure to hit up Flourish. You can follow Flourish on social media at Flourish Coworking. Excuse me. No, that's actually their website. FlourishCoworking.com is the website if you want to learn more about the business. If you want to follow them on social media, they're at Flourish Westchester. My name is J. Scott Smith, telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered. And we are out of here. Episode 109 is cooking it up in the kitchen. Shout out to my man, Chef K-Dot. Big up to Doc Illingsworth. Shout out to Awesome Jones and everybody else who drops music on this show. We'll have 109 coming real soon, y'all. But until next time, 
Goodbye, everybody. You're listening to the People's Podcast. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. This is JSC Radio. This is a presentation of JSC Media. I heard on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online. For like a year, she couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later, killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.